question. I don't know about you, but I'm a bit tired of all the pushing and shoving that the politicians are going through at present, and I can't wait for it to be over, to be quite honest, you know. You may have heard the story about three men. They were professional men, and they were talking about their jobs and whose job was the oldest, which profession was the oldest. And there was a surgeon, and there was an architect, and there was a politician... And the surgeon said, well, my job's the oldest because God took a rib out of Adam, formed a woman, that's an operation. My profession is the oldest. And the architect said, no, there was chaos and beauty and structure was formed out of the chaos. That's architecture. Architecture is the oldest. And the politician said, but who do you think made the chaos? You know. <laughs> so this is not a political rally. Just a word of explanation, I was asked, in spite of the fact that you've been going through a series on Samuel, if I would just take a subject, taking some aspect of prayer this morning. So I want to speak on prayer essentials. And just a word about that. For some years now, and by that I mean nearly 40 years, every day I prepare a sermon outline. That's what I do to meditate on scripture. It just causes me to do that. And so at the beginning of the year, I buy a diary, one page per day, and my aim is that I'll have something on every page. It's pretty simple, heading, main points, that's it. And the purpose is not to preach from it, but merely to make me meditate on Scripture. And I guess the last time I had a... In fact, I was asked, when was the last time you had a blank page? And it was 1988. So, you know, I mean, it's part of my... Now, another part of that is that after two years off, I've been invited back to speak at what is called Lake Learning and to take up a stream which is called Messages from the Mountain. Now, because I've been invited to do that, I thought I'll go through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Sermon on the Mount, and I'll just use that as my daily devotions. And last Sunday, I came to the portion that we're going to speak on this morning, and I call it Prayer Essentials. Now, by the way, if you could come, all of you could come, that would be great. Now, the oldest person we've ever had there is 86. Most of them are young people, and I will say this quite sincerely. I don't know of any situation, I don't know of it, where in one week you can grow so much spiritually as in a week at Lake Learning. A variety of teachers, you can have confidence in the teachers, it's not harebrained kind of teaching. So if you'd like to come, it's pretty cheap for all you get, and you make a lot of friends. So take one of these, and if you have any questions, just ask our friend Andrew. Andrew's on the committee. He'll fill you in, and he'll take your enrolment. So brings us to our subject. So last Sunday, I was working through the Sermon on the Mount and came to Matthew chapter 6, part of, and I would like this as my message this morning. Probably 95% of the time that I'm privileged to preach, I preach from my quiet time material, and I don't do the quiet time in order to preach, but of course, in a year, you've got 365 possibilities and over a period of years, I will never run out of stuff. That's just a system. 
And so I want to share with you something that, of course, I've developed it during the week. And we're going to take Matthew chapter 6 from verse 5, and today I'm using the NIV as our basis of study. Matthew 6 from verse 5. Our Lord is speaking. This is the Sermon on the Mount. It is the longest recorded sermon that we have of our Lord. He touches upon a number of subjects, and now he speaks about prayer, and he says, But when you pray, do not be like hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I read the words of a mission director. He talked about interviewing candidates for the mission field. And he said, I always find that when I ask about a person's prayer life, I embarrass that person. I read the story of a tribe in Africa and there had been a mini-revival go through, and many of them had come to faith in Christ, and they were encouraged to pray. And it was their custom that they would all have an area in the surrounding forest that they would go to. And, of course, as they went back and forth to their prayer rooms, they would trample down the grass. If grass started to grow on that track, a friend would kindly say, friend, there's grass growing on your track. And the challenge that we have for, for today, ladies and gentlemen, is the question, is there grass growing on my prayer track? Now, when we talk about prayer, I know that it's very easy to make us feel really guilty, but I want us to find joy in prayer, and you will find from what our Lord teaches that it can be and should be guilt-free. It's pretty hard to remember accurately everything that happened, but as I think back to my youth going to camps, I, was, I loved going to camps, hear the Bible teaching, go to all-day conferences, hear so much teaching, I used to love it. But um, it seems to me, as I think back, quite often the preacher would say, quoting Samuel, God forbid that I should ever sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. That lays so much guilt on me because there were some people I'd stopped praying for. And I got the impression that if I ever stopped praying for someone, I was sinning against the Lord. And what I have found is that feelings of guilt are poor motivation for prayer. And so I want to develop this idea 
taking, of course, and explaining the words of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. I just want to take it by two approaches. First of all, the first half of the reading, our Lord is saying how not to pray. And then in the second half of the reading, he says, this is how you should pray. One of the things that I discovered this week as I was working through, the word don't or do not occurs so many times. I I went through and I counted something like 20 times our Lord says, do not, do not, do not. And even in the portion that we have in front of us for scrutiny this morning, three times our Lord says, do not, do not, do not. So we're looking at ways in which we do not pray. And from what our Lord says, first of all, Prayer is when, not if. So he says, and when you pray. Now he's talking to people. Now this is a time when our Lord is at the height of popularity, as it were, and he's being, he's being followed by big crowds of people. What does it mean to be a disciple? And even the 12 who had been especially selected, they weren't sure. I mean, they were new converts, as it were, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And in talking to them and the extended crowd, our Lord says, here's one thing. I assume you're going to pray. You're my follower, so you're going to pray. And so when you pray, he doesn't say, and with if you pray. The second thing that I find here in verse 6 is that prayer is private. It's not showy. In the time of our Lord, very prominent in society and respected generally in society were a group of people called the Pharisees. They were men of prayer, well, at least when people were looking. And it seems that basically they only prayed when people were looking and they prayed in order to be seen by women and by men. That's why they did it. And when our Lord is talking here, he's talking basically about the motivation for prayer. Why do you pray? And he says, when you pray, do it privately. You don't show off. And ladies and gentlemen, it's very easy to be a spiritual show-off, boasting about what the Lord has done through you. And so our Lord says, but when you pray... Go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, I don't want to make it too complicated, but I will make this bit of background explanation here. The Old Testament basically, mainly, is written in the Hebrew language. There were times in the history of Israel when they were scattered throughout the then known world and many of them, children, grandchildren, who were brought in what was called the diaspora or the dispersion of the Jewish people, they couldn't read Hebrew anymore and so the Old Testament was translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint, translated by 70 men. That's why it's called Septuagint. So anyway, they couldn't uh, read Hebrew, and so they read the Greek translation of the Hebrew. Now, the interesting thing is, you actually have this, and I'll bring this closer from my eyesight. It actually says in Isaiah 26 and 20, in the, in the translated into Greek, go my people, 
enter your rooms, shut the doors behind you, hide yourselves for a little while until God's wrath has passed by. Now, the words that our Lord taught here, now, again, our Lord taught in Aramaic. He didn't teach in Greek, but it's taken from Aramaic and put into Greek into our New Testament. Now, the point I'm getting around to is this. They are exactly the same words. Shut the door. Go to your room. In the Old Testament, however, you went for privacy to escape the wrath of God. But in the New Testament, when you come to this, what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer, you go into the room alone so that you can get very close to God. And that's one of the differences between the Old Testament approach and the New Testament approach. Now, our Lord is teaching how, as Christians, we actually practice our faith. He's talked about kindness He's going to talk about fasting. He's going to talk about amassing money and all kinds of things that have to do with everyday life. And consistently, our Lord is saying, when you practice your Christianity, you do it privately. You don't do it to show off so that people say, oh, he's so spiritual. Look at the phylacteries, these hide cases on his forehead in which are parts of the Bible and look at the borders on his, on, on his robes and prayer shawls. What a wonderful spiritual man. And God said, people like that are hypocrites. Because you see, when you pray, you don't do it to show off. Your motivation is not to show off. Your motivation is to get close to God. So you close the door. No. There are certain theological underpinnings here. There are certain things that his disciples believed and that we believe. Well, I guess. I don't know what you believe, but I assume that. And one of the things that he actually talks about is omnipresence. That means to say God is everywhere. There is no place nearer to God than any other place. Coming to this building doesn't bring you closer to God. God is with you in your room. He's with you wherever you go. And so there is a belief that if I go into my room, in the old translation, into your closet, if you go into your bedroom and close the door, God is there. He's not just here. He is here. But he's not just here. And it's a wonderful thing that no matter where we go, my, our God is with us. So there's that theological understanding when you pray, go into your room, and invisibility, you pray to your Father who's unseen. You can't see God right now. And when you go into your room to pray, you can't see God. And Paul talks about, in one of his doxologies, he talks about the God invisible, and our God is invisible. And so when you pray, you don't need an idol, and you don't want an idol, and you know it's not necessary nor wanted. And God is invisible. And you also believe in the omniscience of God, and that is he knows everything. He knows what happened. He knows what's happening. He knows what will happen, and he knows what would have happened if. It's called omniscience. Now, God knows everything, and our Lord says, your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, when he's talking about what not to do, he talks about pagans. They're people who 
have no respect for God or do not understand God. And he says, don't be like the pagans. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Some of you already are thinking of the incident that we have in 1 Kings chapter 18. And you have a prophet called Elijah, the prophet of fire, and he's in a contest with the prophets of Baal. And the prophets of Baal from morning till evening, they're running around and they're crying out to Baal and they're cutting themselves. And very significantly at the end of that portion, it says, but, he, but there was still no sound, no reply, no response. Pagans pray long prayers. Praying doesn't make you a Christian because pagans pray. What makes you a Christian is faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean to say that unsaved people cannot pray. They do. We have the story in Acts chapter 10 of a man called Cornelius, a leader of the Italian cohort. And he prayed to God. He didn't know Jesus at that time, but he prayed to God, gave, gave alms, did good, acts of kindness, and he was heard because of that. So unsaved people can pray. In fact, that's how we become saved. That's how we become Christians, is by calling upon the name of the Lord. And if unsaved people can't pray, then they could never become Christians. If you're not a believer this morning, you can pray a very simple prayer, and it's not in the length of words. It's very, very simple. There was a time when Peter was drowning, and he said, Lord, save me. And it's a picture of what happens when you lift your heart to God and you say, I want salvation, I want Christ, I want eternal life, Lord save me. Remember, it's not a matter of a whole lot of words. So pagans pray and one of the things that you find here is the brevity of prayer. And we'll come on to that shortly. You don't have to pray for a long time. Some of you are studying Nehemiah. In Nehemiah, right in the opening chapters, you find that Nehemiah, chapter 2, you find that Nehemiah is actually hauled up before his boss, the king, and he's looking very sad. If you look at a book written about the same time, the book of Esther, you find that if you're sad in the presence of the king, you will die. You're not allowed to look sad in the presence of the king. He liked everyone to be jolly. So the king said, uh, what's making you sad? And it says, I prayed to the God of heaven and I said, O king. He didn't the king didn't realize it, but in that fraction, in that one or two seconds between the question and the response, he had had an interview with God. You see, it's instantaneous. It can be very brief. My mother used to like little proverbs. One of the things that we find in our society is we don't use proverbs very much these days in sayings like we used to. Most cultures do. The Maori people, they use proverbs a lot. But nowadays, we don't use proverbs very much in sayings. But my mother used to, so I was brought up with proverbs. And sometimes she'd say, twixt the saddle and the ground, mercy he sought, mercy he found. And it's about a person falls off a horse, falls off a horse, prays, and he's saved. 
That's an instant of time. You see, you don't have, this is one of our Lord is saying, you don't have to pray for a long time because prayer may be brief, not wordy. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans and so on. Now, sometimes, you know, as a preacher, it's very easy to make people feel guilty. But when we come to church, we don't want to go away feeling guilty. The Bible actually says encourage one another, and that's what I want to do. And that's what we find in the words of our Lord, because he's saying prayer is guilt-free. And you don't come and you say, oh, I feel so guilty because I only prayed for half an hour or five minutes or whatever. If you actually look this through, you find it takes about 12 seconds to pray this. Our Father, which art in heaven. So he says, this is how you pray. And that teaches us a number of things, and it's coming up on the screen about prayer. We don't have to be prayer experts. If you can just say something sincerely, then you can pray, because you see the Bible says the Holy Spirit takes our mumblings and presents them before God. We don't know how to pray as we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself takes our prayers. It was the great pre uh, preacher C.H. Spurgeon he used to say, the seerest prayer is this. Oh. Uh. You see, you bring your thoughts to God, your feelings to God, and the Spirit of God makes them presentable to, to the Father. And you don't have to be good with words. I mean, a lot of people are very good with words. Other people are not good with words. You don't have to be good with words. And you don't have to be prayer warriors. I'd like to be a prayer warrior. And I want to be and I aim to be. But sometimes we hear about prayer warriors and say, well, I'm not in that category. I can never pray. And we don't have to wait till we retire. You know, I've heard people say, oh, um, I'm going to wait until I retire and I have more time to pray. You don't need a lot of time. This is how you should pray, our Lord says. And that takes about 12 seconds. So what our Lord has been saying here is these are things to avoid. Here's how not to pray. And then from verse 6 on, he points out how to pray. It's what I call prayer essentials. And the first prayer essential is reverence. And he says, Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Why doesn't he say, my father, give me this day my daily bread? Because he's by himself. He's talking about being by yourself. You're not showing off. You're by yourself. You don't have to pray a long time. Why do you say our father? Because when you pray, it is not a selfish exercise. You include others when you pray. And so when you are praying, even by yourself, you're praying on behalf of others as well. And so the big thing here is reverence. And we are told to pray for all people, those in authority, kings, and so on. And we pray for those as we head up to our elections, no doubt. Hallowed be your name. That's reverence. You see, when we pray, we're not praying to our mate. He is closer than a brother. But there's always reverence. And one thing, ladies and gentlemen, we need to always follow is to realize that when we do engage in prayer, even if it's only for 12 seconds, we're praying to the one who created the heavens and the earth and holds all things together by the word of his power. That's the God 
to whom we pray. So there's always reverence. And as I was developing this, I remembered the verse that we have in Hebrews chapter 12 that says, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And that's in the New Testament. Reverence. That's one of the essentials of prayer. Now, by the way, you'll notice that our Lord, first of all, is saying, this is how you don't pray. And now he says, this is how you pray. And he says, and this is how you should pray. Our Lord is not saying, this is what you should pray. This is how you should pray. And of course, it's not wrong to pray what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. It's not the Lord's Prayer. Our Lord would never pray that. He never had to pray, forgive us our debts. The Lord's Prayer is found in John chapter 17. But we call it the Lord's Prayer. Now, it's not wrong to pray the Lord's Prayer, but our Lord is not saying, this is what you pray. He says, this is how you pray, and you pray reverently. The second thing is, you pray with hope. And so he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I know there is a stream of teaching that says we have to Christianize society and the kingdom of God comes by Christianizing society. I don't want to go into this too deeply, but I'll just make mention of it. The Christian faith is full of expectation built on the promises of God. It's called hope. Our future is always wonderful, and we're looking forward to the kingdom of God, but the Bible says that if you're a believer, you're already a member of the kingdom. Theologians, and they talk a lot about the kingdom of God these days, theologians use the expression already but not yet. The kingdom of God is here already. If you're a believer, the kingdom of God is yours. You are a member of the kingdom of God already. But the kingdom in all its fullness has not come yet. And you do not bring in the kingdom by Christianizing society, but do all you can to bring the Christian ethos into society. Do everything that you can to show Christ to society. But that's not how the kingdom of God comes in. It's individual, but one day it will be geographical. So he's talking about the kingdom of God. As I was doing some, well, I sort of remembered that when I was in upper sixth, I think, as we called it at high school, in those dim, dark, prehistoric days, you know, and we were studying the fifth monarchy men in England. I know I go too much into that, but there was a group of strict Puritans, and they looked at Daniel, and they saw there were four kingdoms would be established, and then the kingdom of Christ would come, and they thought they would bring in the kingdom of Christ. One way they did it was by participating in the beheading of Charles I, because they're bringing in Christ's kingdom. Of course, after about 11 or 12 years, the monarchy was restored, and some of those were still wanting to bring in the kingdom of God by force. And in 1661, about 50 of these fifth monarchy men, they stormed London in the name of King Jesus. They were taken, and they were hung, drawn, and quartered. But they tried to bring in the kingdom of God that way. You can't bring in the kingdom of God by violence. You show it by your good deeds. Now, just one verse. 
It's coming up on the screen. Paul, St. Paul, as he's often known, says to us, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom. Then it will be worldwide. Then it will be geographical. Then it will be totally inclusive. But when you pray, you pray in hope in the sense of you know that the promises of God will be fulfilled. It's the great hope of the church. And then you pray with dependence. Give us today your daily bread, or give us today our daily bread. The word daily here, this is the only place it's found in the Bible, and going back a thousand years, they used to wonder, what does it actually mean daily? It was only found here, and a few years ago, they discovered some manuscripts in the dry sands of Egypt, and it gave them an idea what it was about, and it was a shopping list, and it used this word. And that is why, for example, in the New Living Translation, it has, give us this day the bread that we need. So we don't ask for things that we don't need, we pray for the things that we do need, and we express our dependence. Now, the big question when we come to prayer is this, but what's how I pray and doesn't happen? And so, I mean, this is a huge subject. If you want to follow up further, there's Yancey's book. It's called Prayer Doesn't Make Any Difference. That's a good book. There are good books. But anyway, on the next slide, there suggest five ways in which God does answer prayer. First of all, God answers this way. Yes, I thought you'd never ask. And that's our dependence on him. We're expressing our dependence for everything that we need. And sometimes he says, no, I love you too much. I'm not going to do what you ask me to do because I love you too much. And I know that if I said yes, it would be to your spiritual or other destruction. And yes, but not yet. I'm going to leave it for a while before I actually answer the prayer in the way that you ask. And yes, and here's more. I'll give you much more than you ever asked for. And the fifth way is yes, but not the way you think. It will be different, you know. So, I mean, you could expand on that quite a lot, uh, of course. Now, another prayer essential is confession. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. In the New Living Translation, I toggle between the NIV and the New Living Translation. It says, forgive us our sins. And so you say, what is it, debts or sins? What is it? So I looked up W.E. Vine, and he points out that the word debt is used in a couple of ways. One is literal, where you actually owe money to somebody, and the other is metaphorical. That is, when it's a kind of picture of the reality. And so when we say, forgive us our debts, he's referring to sins. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. We need forgiveness. I need forgiveness every day. Now, I'd just like to comment because a lot of people get really worried about that. Make a comment on verses 14, 15. But if you forgive men, and that's forgive men and women, when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So he's praying here, or explaining what he's actually taught in the prayer when we pray, forgive us our sins as we also have forgiven those who have sinned against us. Doesn't mean to say that if I don't forgive somebody, I lose my salvation, because when I come to Christ, I'm forgiven, aren't I? I have eternal life, I have eternal security. But here our Lord says, if you don't forgive somebody, you lose that. Is that how you understand? No. 
and I'll, again, I mean, these are all big subjects. There are two types of forgiveness. One is judicial and the other is parental. Judicial is when God as judge says, I forgive you and I announce you to be free in my name. It is called justification, pronounced, justified, pronounced, innocent. That's judicial forgiveness and that can never be taken away. If you are a believer, God who is judge has actually given you that eternal forgiveness. But there's also parental forgiveness. And that's indicated by the beginning of this, where he says, our father, we're his children. And so now he's talking about parental forgiveness. And that's where we need, day by day, is forgiveness. We don't lose our salvation if we don't forgive somebody else. But how can it be true of a believer that he harbors bitterness and grudges all his life? You know, I mean, grudge begins, and it's very easy to live a life of grrr. It'll ruin your communion. It will not destroy your union with Christ. I mean, we could develop that. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, Grace, thank you. One man who made a tremendous impact on our churches in New Zealand in the 1930s, which, believe it or not, is even before my time, was a man called Harold Sinjin. Came to New Zealand twice, went around the world. He was a beautiful... I've read everything I could find he was, that he spoke. In those days, when he came to this area, for example, uh, Mrs Hull would take down shorthand everything that he said and it was reproduced in stuff that I've got. Anyway, he's talking about this verse... He was actually in the Cambridge Assembly on the 21st of August, 1932. Harold St. John, godly man. He said, I challenge any one of you at nightfall to go to the Father's presence and lift your hands and say, Father, Father, I've sinned again, uh, uh, sinned today and ask your forgiveness, but I'm not going to forgive John Smith who insulted me today. Would the Father forgive you? Again and again, the Lord Jesus makes it clear that while the ground of eternal forgiveness to a sinner is the irrevocable work of Christ, the ground of the Father's forgiveness and our restoration to communion, when we've broken its thread by disobedience, is that we confess the sin and not that we cherish in our hearts a spirit of hatred that would make forgiveness an impossibility. I hope that clarifies that. Very quickly, another prayer essential is what I call aspiration, and that is the aspiration, the desire to live a life of holiness. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you don't pussyfoot with the devil. You don't see how close to sinning you can actually get without sinning. You actually want to live a life that pleases God, a life of purity and holiness. And that's why you pray and lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. When you become a believer, the Holy Spirit of God comes to dwell in you. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit of God does in you is give the desire to be holy. St. Augustine just came to me now. St. Augustine used to he said that before he became a believer, he used to say, God, make me holy, make me holy, but not yet. You know. But anyway, the true believer, he actually, she wants to be holy. So that's why the believer prays like this. 
Because you see, temptation is an assault on the desire to be holy. There's a man who lived a thousand years ago, more or less, and his name was Anselm. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury. And I'll read it slowly because it does take a bit of thought. Lord, give me what you have made me want. I want to be holy. Your spirit has given me this aspiration or desire. I praise and thank you for the desire that you have inspired. You see, the spirit of God is at work in the lives of every believer. That's why you're here this morning. I'm sure that you didn't come because you love being out in the rain. You came, and not because of a habit, because the Spirit of God works in you and says, be with God's people. Listen to God's word. Take bread, take wine in memory of Jesus. It's the work of the Spirit. So anyway, going back to Anselm of Canterbury. Lord, give me what you have made me want. I praise and thank you for the desire that you have inspired. Complete what you have begun and grant me what you have made me long for. And that's a good prayer. Paul says, pray without ceasing. There's a Russian classic, and in it, it has a peasant woman who took that literally, and 7,000 times a day she would pray, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. She would take it literally. Now, I'm sure that Paul doesn't mean that, and God doesn't mean that, but he means don't give up praying. And if you've given up praying, it's not too late to start. And you can start with 12 seconds. Let's all pray to God now. There's a slide coming up. And as the Spirit of God has spoken here this morning and spoken to your heart and mine, let us pray something like this or whatever it is that the Spirit of God brings to you. But something like this, Lord, I'm amazed that I can pray to you, my Creator and King. I confess my weakness in this area, or maybe you say, or I thank you for the strength to persist in this matter. And I ask that I might be a prayerful person, faithfully bringing my needs and thankfulness to you. Quite often on radio we hear, think of 10 things you're thankful for at night time before you go to sleep, and 10 things when you wake up and life will be better. But my question is, to whom are you thankful? They never say, to whom you're thankful, just say, be thankful. But we know we're thankful to God. Let's just take 20 seconds to pray silently. No razzmatazz, no show, but silently to God for 20 seconds. And as the Spirit of God has whispered to us or shouted to us this morning, let us respond now. And now it's time, maybe too late. Let us respond now to the Spirit's call. 20 seconds. Lord, every prayer that's been offered has been offered in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen.